The broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen-only mode. Thank you so much for joining us here on CPA Academy. This is Vatisco CPA Academy. My pleasure to welcome you to this presentation. Excited to get started here right on time. Excited so many people are registered and joining us for today's course. Before we get too much further, let's just make sure everything is working correctly. You should be able to hear me at this point. You should be able to see that slide up on your screen. Wouldn't mind just confirming that through that questions panel. Make me feel a whole lot better that we're in good shape and ready to get going. And already seeing Sean and Mike and Mary, Liz, Jessica, Cynthia, Tom, several others saying things are working and uh, letting me know what the weather is and where you are from. So I appreciate that. Looks like we have a lively and attentive group of CPA Academy members joining us today. That same question panel is how you remain interactive with us throughout the course. If you do have questions or comments, go ahead and put those in. We'll do our best to keep an eye on those throughout the session. Of course, we have a lot to cover in our hour and a half today. So anything we don't get to, we'll make sure we get passed along to Mike once we wrap up with today's course. Reminder on how things work. You can earn credit for attending today. It's very simple to do so. Just remain logged in throughout the duration of the presentation. The polling questions as well, which are part of the CPE process. I'm going to watch those intermittently throughout the session. You'll see those pop up on the screen where you're currently seeing the slide. And all you have to do, select an answer feels most appropriate, and hit the big submit button. We'll spend about a minute each or less on those polling questions. So please do get your answer in as quickly as you can so we can uh, remain focused on the content for today. Once we wrap up here, we'll get to work on issuing that credit for you. It takes us about 24 hours or less. You'll see an email from us here at CPA Academy letting you know it's all set and available in your account. Made a couple of handouts available to you as well. Those are in your handout, uh, in the handout tab right there. You can go to webinar as well as a copy in your CPA Academy account for you to access. So certainly encourage you to take advantage of those as well. Mike, I wanna say thank you so much for joining us, for presenting to our members. Very much looking forward to the presentation and content today. So I appreciate your expertise in advance. Like I said, I know there's a lot to cover. so. I'm just going to step back. I'll step out of your way, Mike. I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Um, it's an honor to present to you um, today this uh, seminar on demystifying the F-bar. Um, Matt was absolutely right on the money when he talked about uh, the amount of information and the volume of information that goes along with this topic. Whoops. Um, this is, I, I've oftentimes, um, when I've done this topic, I've heard people say that it's the equivalent of um, drinking out of a fire hydrant. Um, so there is a lot of information to cover. And I'm going to try to be as thorough as I as I can when I go through all of this. If you have questions, um, I believe that there is an area for uh, posting, and I'll do my best to get to them. Um, however, your question may be answered in a later slide, um, so I might wait till the end. Um, so these are the modules that, uh, whoops, oh, <laughs> I apologize, uh, seem to have, Oh, here it is. Okay. Um, all right. I'm just going to set this back to the slideshow mode and from the start. Okay. <clears throat> 
So these are the modules that we're going to um, talk about today. We're going to begin with deconstructing the FBAR rule. Uh, we'll then work to module two, which is a second part of deconstructing the FBAR rule. We'll go to some of the most commonly asked questions about the FBAR, uh, go uh, right into willfulness, discuss um, going beyond the FBAR, everything you never wanted to know about all of the other international reporting forms. Um, it is quite ambitious that we'll make it that far, but uh, we'll do the best we can. All right, this is a little story um, about Dustin Hoffman. Uh, he's one of my favorite actors. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, um, I am a tax attorney, and uh, believe it or not, um, I am a professionally trained actor as well, so I have a proclivity for the arts, and whenever I have the opportunity to take um, some type of acting theme and weave it into my presentations, um, I jump on it and seize the opportunity. Uh, this is going back to 1997 with Dustin Hoffman, who won the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Golden Globes Award Ceremony. And um, he actually told a story to the audience. Uh, we don't have time to cover the entire story, but the sum and substance of it is that he was um, mesmerized by uh, Igor Stravinsky, the great Russian-American composer. And um, he, one night, was flipping through the dials of the uh, television in his hotel room when he came upon an interview of this great Russian-American composer. And uh, what struck him was the fact that, um, um, that uh, Stravinsky said that um, the most... Um, uh, the most uh, incredible moment for him was when he found the bebum, bebum, bebum of um, the tune or the work or composition that he was working on while sitting at the piano. And um, it goes on to talk, uh, he goes on to talk about how this would go on for days and hours and even weeks. And uh, by finding the note, um, that for Stravinsky was the moment. And so Huffman, uh, Huffman made the point that the moment for him was not when he gets cast in a major role in a blockbuster movie, but instead when he stands before, um, but instead when he finds the B-bums that make his character work. And for him, that's the moment. And so for us as tax practitioners, um, I think that we can uh, say uh, fairly that uh, for us, um, it, the moment is when we can take a complicated concept and simplify it in a way that it can be understood by our clients. Um, for, for me, at least personally, that's when I feel like I found the B-bum in, um, in my work. And uh, you might be able to relate to it at that level as well, because obviously we deal with some very um, meticulous and cumbersome concepts. And to be able to explain it in a way that can be easily understood by our clients is a, is a game changer. These are our learning objectives. We're going to learn the purpose of the FBAR regulations, determine who must file, determine the FBAR filing requirements, determine who's exempt from the FBAR filing requirements, and then discuss the civil and criminal penalties. Now, before we jump into um, FBAR land, um, I do want to talk briefly about uh, how we got to this, um, to this form, and um, it would be impossible to do so without talking about our uh, system of taxation. As many of you are aware, uh, the U.S. 
has a worldwide taxation system. Uh, that means that it taxes its citizens and, red and residents regardless of where the income is earned. Um, it's one of, we're one of the few countries left in the world. I believe the latest statistic is that uh, there may only be one or two other countries in the world that still tax its citizens and residents on their worldwide income. And so that essentially means that um, the American uh, person can own a business um, in uh, lands as far as way, uh, in, in lands, uh, you know, half a world away. And um, despite the fact that the money is being earned in that foreign country, um, it has to, the profits from that company have to be reported on a U.S. tax return. And uh, that's the whole essence of our U.S. worldwide taxation system. And so there's an argument that um, there's double taxation um, in the sense that the foreign jurisdiction uh, will also seek to tax those profits as well. And so when a U.S. citizen or resident derives income or holds assets in another country, um, you have two, um, two, uh, uh, two taxing authorities that are seeking to um, tax the profits, uh, the U.S. and the foreign country taxing the same item of income as their own. And both countries have the jurisdiction to do just that. And so the main cause of this international double taxation quagmire is inconsistent sourcing rules in different countries that impose these overlapping taxes. Now, um, suffice to say, if this were the norm, double taxation would stop international acti activity dead in its tracks. Um, and so the U.S. Um, recognizes this, and in doing so, it attempts to mitigate the harsh impact of worldwide taxation in three ways. Um, and these are probably um, the ones that you have heard of and that you might be familiar with. Uh, the first is the foreign tax credit. That lies at the heart of the system of our outbound system. The second is the foreign earned income exclusion. The third is the section 911 exclusion for the personal service income of non-resident citizens and for non-resident citizens housing costs. Now, of course, um, the 800-pound gorilla um, in the room that I haven't mentioned is taxing treaties. Um, so the U.S. has a lot of treaties with uh, countries um, specifically in Europe, such as uh, Great Britain and France, that um, mitigate the harsh effects of worldwide taxation as well. Um, of these three, the foreign tax credit uh, can blunt um, this whole uh, double taxation issue in one fell swoop. And it's for this reason that a lot of tax professionals refer to it as the equalizer. And uh, when foreign tax rates are roughly the same as U.S. tax rates, the combination of worldwide taxation and the foreign tax credit virtually eliminate double taxation entirely. Um, so the quick and dirty example here is that if you have a client who has who is in a 35% income tax bracket in the United States and their tax bracket in the foreign jurisdiction is 20%, essentially uh, they are going to pay the difference between 35% and 20% um, to the U.S. Uh, taxing authority. The U.S. Uh, the IRS, that is, is going to give the taxpayer credit for the 20% um, that the taxpayer paid to the foreign taxing jurisdiction. And uh, that's roughly, in, um, you know, in, in one way, how the U.S. blunts this whole double taxation nightmare. 
So what gives the U.S. the right to tax its citizens on a worldwide basis in the first place? It's not the um, Internal Revenue Code, nor is it any legislation passed by Congress. Believe it or not, um, it comes from a very small case that the United States Supreme Court decided uh, going back decades. And um, that long case established a case law that um, allows the U.S. Constitution um, to permit the federal government's worldwide taxation of non-resident U.S. citizens. And so what is that case? That is the case of Cook versus Tate. And uh, when I said decades, I meant decades. As you can see here, it goes all the way back to 1924. And it's a fascinating case and a really interesting read as to um, the view that the justices took and the rationale that they used to invoke uh, this whole notion of international um, uh, double taxation. Uh, public benefits is what came up in the case um, and as justification for the U.S. taxing its citizens and residents on their worldwide income. And um, the justices were quick to discuss civil rights, political rights, and social rights. Um, and so what we have today are two primary ways by which a country can exercise jurisdiction to tax. Uh, the first is the worldwide taxation, and the second is territorial tax system. And they actually can be further divided, uh, but what we'll do is we'll talk uh, briefly about the territorial tax system. Under a territorial tax system, uh, the tax is limited to taxation of income or assets located inside a country's borders, no matter who derives it, a citizen, a resident, or anyone else. And um, this is sometimes referred to as source-based taxation. The territorial tax systems uh, essentially accommodate other countries' tax systems in the simplest way possible by not extending their own. So they don't step on the feet or on the toes of the other um, taxing authority. Worldwide taxation is based on political allegiance. Uh, this system of tax is premised not on the source of income or assets, but upon the political allegiance of the taxpayer who owns the income. And um, as you can imagine here, how the country defines the phrase political allegiance can lead to two different types of worldwide taxation. The first is citizenship-based, for which the United States is a poster child, and the second is residence-based, for which Canada is the poster child. I'll give you um, a quick definition of each. Uh, for citizenship-based worldwide taxation, the U.S. defines political allegiance as an individual citizenship regardless of his residence. And that's why a person who is um, you know, a U.S. citizen who is living in a foreign country must still report their foreign source income on their 1040. Residence-based. These other nations define political allegiance for tax purposes on the basis of residence. And um, the, uh, the, uh, the fact that they define it on the basis of residence means that they tax an individual's global income and holdings only if the person resides in that nation. And what's really cool about this is that we can, um, we can come up with a quick and dirty example of how this works. Now, as we discussed before, uh, Canada is the poster child of residence-based taxation. It imposes worldwide taxation on all of its residents 
uh, without regard to Canadian citizenship. Um, and so the issue here becomes one of, uh, is this distinction between citizenship-based tax and residence-based tax one without a difference, or is it much to do about nothing? Uh, well, there is a difference. And um, here is uh, what it is. What's the chief difference between the U.S. system of citizenship-based taxation and the Canadian system of residence-based taxation? And here it is. A non-resident Canadian citizen, one who lives outside of Canada, does not pay Canadian income tax on the income that he earns in the foreign country in which he now resides. Instead, he only pays Canadian income tax on the income that is generated in Canada, if any. Uh, so just breaking that down a little bit more, what this means is that the Canadian citizen who is living outside of the country, uh, perhaps in, um, you know, in Central America somewhere, um, where at, regardless of where it is, that person would not pay Canadian income tax on the income that they earn in the foreign country. Say, for example, it's Peru. Um, in which they now reside. Instead, that person would only pay Canadian income tax on the income that is generated in Canada. And um, the likelihood might be that there is no um, that there is no income generated in Canada during the time that the Canadian citizen is living in Peru, for example. A non-resident U.S. citizen, on the other hand, must pay U.S. taxes not only on the income that's generated in the U.S., but also on the income that's generated in the foreign country in which he now resides. So taking that example and moving it forward, um, if the U.S. person is living in Peru and is earning income in Peru, that income is taxable as foreign source income on uh, his or her 1040. Um, and just like the income that is generated in the U.S., if any, during the time that the U.S. citizen is abroad. All right, now we jump into the FBAR. The FBAR stands for a Foreign Bank Account Report. Um, it's a tool used by the U.S. government to identify people who may be using foreign financial accounts to break U.S. law. Now, the FBAR is not something that um, materialized out of thin air um, back in 2003. It's been enforced since that year, however. The FBAR, believe it or not, was uh, given birth by the Bank Secrecy Act. And the Bank Secrecy Act uh, came about through legislation that was passed back in the 70s. Um, so it is, it's been on the books for a very, very long time. However, it only started to be enforced um, around 2003. And what's interesting about that year is that um, it's two years after 9-11. Uh, so one can make some assumptions as to why uh, the IRS began enforcing it as heavy-handed as it did in 2003, as opposed to years prior when it was on the books and when um, it was, uh, for all intents and purposes, ignored. Well, we realized as a country that post 9-11, um, there was a lot of terrorist financing that was passing through our banking system, as well as foreign countries' banking systems. So the U.S. was quick to identify um, how the FBAR could be a 
very important information gathering tool um, to ensure that terrorist financing doesn't find its way through our domestic banking systems um, and that it doesn't find its way through international banking systems. That's one reason. Another reason, and perhaps this is equally as important, if not more, is that the IRS um, always realized or always knew that there was a lot of money parked overseas uh, by U.S. citizens and residents. And um, a lot of that money, they realized, was being stored in foreign bank accounts and um, that were numbered accounts and that were private accounts that, um, that taxpayers, U.S. taxpayers, did not report. And so they realized that there was a lot of income that was not being reported by U.S. Um, individuals um, and that was parked overseas. So they wanted to use, they wanted to be able to use the FBAR as a tool to, um, to identify, you know, uh, what uh, taxpayers uh, had, uh, what taxpayers uh, had holdings overseas so that it can be taxed. And so um, it really boils down to the fact that the IRS um, and the Treasury's coffers uh, were very low, and uh, they viewed this as a way to um, increase uh, revenue and to uh, bring money back into the system. Um, and so the FBAR had uh, many purposes, um, not only to identify or trace funds used for illegal purposes or to identify unreported income maintained or generated abroad, but comes down to the almighty dollar, the fact that the uh, IRS uh, knew that there were people who were hiding uh, money overseas and not reporting the interest income generated by uh, those foreign bank accounts, nor were they reporting it on an FBAR as they uh, were supposed to. Now, contrary to popular belief, the FBAR is not technically required by the tax code. Uh, as we discussed, it's a creature of the Bank Secrecy Act. Um, it, what, the FBAR was first instituted as a reporting requirement for U.S. persons with overseas accounts. Um, and as we've discussed already, the IRS has breathed new life into the FBAR as a tax enforcement and revenue-raising tool. Um, it's administered, the IRS, uh, that is, uh, has administered and enforced it since 2003. Um, for those of you who are... Um, who have seen the uh, the uh, pseudonym uh, FinCEN on the form um, and in some of the uh, helpful guidelines? Uh, that is because this form, the FBAR, is actually um, is actually created by the Financial Crimes and Enforcement Network. So the form itself is a FinCEN form, and again, that stands for Financial Crimes and Enforcement Network, but it's enforced by the IRS. So that's why when it is electronically filed, the FBAR, it, it, it goes to FinCEN, which is a separate um, agency under the Department of Treasury and not the IRS. The IRS, however, has the authority uh, through legislation to enforce the FBAR, and we'll get to that when we discuss penalties. The FBAR rule. Every Mike, I'm wondering just before we jump into that one, if we want to launch our very first poll. Sure. All right. So that one is up and going. Just a reminder, polls are part of the credit process. 
Even if you're not here to receive credit, certainly do appreciate you participating in these. Helps move things along. Let's just know that it is working correctly. We're already at 80% uh, having put in the response. So it looks like we have an attentive audience here today. We'll give it just a few more moments so that everyone get their opportunity to put in a response. How would you rate your knowledge? Let's just take a look at the results so far. 20% are saying none. So certainly going to find this session valuable. 46, a large response rate saying fair. 28%, good. 6% are excellent. So you can keep us in line here today. Last few seconds on poll number one. And we'll go ahead and close it down here. And Mike, we're back to your screen. Just looks like your PowerPoint was minimized oh, again. Okay. Sorry about that, everyone. Um, Slideshow. Okay, we'll just hit resume. Yeah. Oh. Okay, I seem to be at the rule. I just have to get rid of. See, slideshow uh, from current slide. All right. So uh, FBAR rule. Every term here is a term of art. Um, and I, I, I say that as a preface before we jump into the definition. So what I'm going to do is break it down into its individual parts based on the terms that you see here in italics. A U.S. person must file an FBAR if that person has a financial interest in or a signature authority over any financial account outside of the U.S. and the aggregate maximum value of the account exceeds 10000 in U.S. dollars at any time during the calendar year. So as I said, um, every term here is a term of art and we can't necessarily impose our own um, definition of what we think these terms mean, as simple as they might appear. Here are the elements. Um, first is U.S. person. Second is financial interest in or signature authority over. Third is any financial account outside of the U.S. Four, aggregate maximum value of account. And I will tell you, just to, uh, just to hone your attention in on this aggregate maximum value tends to be one of the most um, misunderstood and um, confused area of this definition. So I'm going to have some hypotheticals to walk you through that. Exceeds 10,000, six at any time during the calendar year. All right, we talked about that already. And let us jump into this rule. Who's a U.S. person? A citizen or resident of the United States um, is a U.S. person, but also, and this can be a little misleading because when you see person, you might think of a live human being with a pulse. Um, however, person is more broad than just a live human being with a pulse. It can also be an entity created or organized in the U.S. or under the laws of the U.S. And by entity, uh, we are not limited just to C-Corps. Uh, but also to partnerships and limited liability companies. Um, person also includes a trust formed under the laws of the U.S. and an estate formed under the laws of the U.S. Uh, for U.S. resident purposes, to determine if the filer is a resident of the U.S., what you do is you would apply the residency tests located in this uh, statute, uh, which is 7701B. And I've given two uh, quick and dirty examples here. First, Matt, uh, we have Matt 
he's our taxpayer and he's a citizen of Argentina. He's lived in the U.S. every day for the last three years. Because Matt is considered a resident by application of the rules under 7701B, he'd have to file an FBAR. And uh, what might be shocking at first about that is the fact that Matt is not a citizen of the U.S., um, but a citizen of Argentina. Yet, because he satisfies the the residency rules under 7701B, he would still be obliged to file an FBAR. In example two, Kyle is our taxpayer. He's a permanent resident of the U.S. He is a citizen of the U.K. Under a tax treaty, and this is a theme that you're going to hear uh, repeated throughout this presentation, tax treaty, under a tax treaty, Kyle is a tax resident of the UK and elects to be taxed as a resident of the US of the UK. Kyle must file an FBAR. Tax treaties with the US do not affect FBAR filing obligations. Very, very, very important, as I'm sure that um, there are a lot of members in this audience that have clients who are based in uh, abroad. Um, in the UK. So tax treaties do not give uh, taxpayers um, a dispensation who uh, would otherwise have an FBAR filing obligation. What does a financial account include? It includes the -the run-of-the-mill bank accounts that you would expect um, from the basic savings accounts, checking accounts, and time deposits, and It goes as broadly as to include other accounts, um, such as security accounts, brokerage accounts, securities, derivatives, uh, other financial instruments. Um, And it goes into accounts that um, generate, uh, you know, that generate higher levels of interest than the traditional savings and checking accounts. So um, it includes uh, not only these securities accounts and brokerage accounts, but commodities, insurance policies with a cash value. Uh, that comes up time and time and time again, um, insurance policies, um, because a lot of times um, it becomes necessary to determine whether a uh, foreign pension and whether uh, foreign uh, holdings actually uh, fall within the purview of the this definition. But um, whenever I get a, uh, a call about uh, whether something is a financial account for purposes of the FBAR rule, um, I usually work from the premise that everything um, is a financial account unless um, it can be excluded. Um, so I make a presumption that it is unless um, it can, it's found not to be. And that's because um, in this area, we want to be very, very careful because of how punitive the civil penalties are for not filing. And it's oftentimes better to be um, uh, to be better. It's oftentimes better to be working out of an abundance of caution uh, rather than throw caution to the wind and take a chance when it comes to FBAR filing. Uh, mutual funds uh, or similar pooled funds, uh, that's a big area too, um, as a lot of um, holdings, foreign holdings, are um, do meet the duck test for uh, being a mutual fund uh, for purposes of this definition. 
any other accounts maintained in a foreign financial institution or with a person performing the services of a financial institution. This is like the catch-all phrase that basically says, okay, if we didn't mention it in the laundry list that we just um, uh, ticked off for you, this is going to be the catch-all, um, everything else under the universe. <laughs> so example, uh, gold or currency cash notes uh, maintained in a foreign financial institution and stored inside a vault at that institution. Um, that actually raises a very uh, interesting issue that I've seen on numerous occasions. Now, contrary to popular belief, not all foreign assets owned by U.S. taxpayers must be reported. According to um, FinCEN FBAR reference guide, a financial account does not include. So there are some that uh, there are some accounts that don't get um, uh, grouped into this hodgepodge, uh, but they are very limited. Um, nonetheless, you should still be familiar with the ones that are exempt. IRAs, uh, owners or beneficiaries of IRAs are not required to report a foreign financial account held in the IRA. And remember here, every word is a term of art. So um, you have to read it very carefully. Participants in and beneficiaries of tax qualified retirement plans. A participant in or beneficiary of a, of a retirement plan described in one of those sections of the code is not required to report a foreign financial account held by or on behalf of the retirement plan. And uh, what's very uh, misleading here is that a lot of the retirement, foreign retirement plans at least, hold uh, just the type of, of um, accounts that we discussed here that are included in financial account. So a lot of times they um, are they actually hold foreign mutual funds um, or they hold um, some type of uh, retirement fund. And so we have to really dig very deep and ensure that if we're um, ensure that it really does fall under an exemption before we um, we automatically conclude that we don't need to file it on an FBAR. Consolidated FBAR, a U.S. person that is an entity and is named in a consolidated FBAR filed by a greater than 50% owner is not required to file a separate FBAR. And that's our consolidated FBAR rule. Trust beneficiaries, a trust beneficiary with a direct or indirect financial interest in greater than 50% of the trust assets or income is not required to report to trust foreign financial accounts on an FBAR if the trust trustee or agent of the trust, and as you can see, there's a two-pronged test here, is a U.S. person, and secondly, files an FBAR disclosing the trust foreign financial accounts. Um, signature authority. Individuals who have signature authority over but no financial interest in a foreign financial account are not required to report the account in certain situations. And so that might sound like an oxymoron because our general rule says that if you, if the person has signature authority over the account, there is an uh, FBAR filing obligation. But as you can see here, there is a very narrow exception to that. Um, and uh, that requires the individual to have no financial interest in the foreign financial account and further makes a requirement that there are certain situations when it's not required. Online poker accounts, uh, that comes up frequently these days. Um, and we do have a circuit court opinion 
from the Ninth Circuit, which um, includes California and um, uh, many of the Western states. I believe Nevada is uh, one of the states in the Ninth Circuit as well. Uh, the Ninth Circuit held that a taxpayer's accounts with two foreign-based online poker sites were not bank accounts that a taxpayer had to report on FinCEN 114, otherwise known as the FBAR. Um, however, um, it's very important um, that you read this opinion because it also found that there were other foreign-based online poker sites that did indeed constitute um, bank accounts for purposes of FBAR reporting. So uh, this is a, basically a very narrow and carved out exception. Uh, these were the facts of that case. Um, I might go through them uh, quickly just because this issue comes up fairly frequently. Um, the name of the taxpayer was uh, John, um, and he gambled online through internet accounts with pokerstars.com and partypoker.com and used an account at firepay.com which was an online financial organization that received, held, and paid funds on behalf of its customers uh, to fund the other two accounts. So just to keep uh, everybody on the same page, FirePay was basically the um, uh, online account that paid funds on behalf of its customers to fund the other two accounts. At uh, various points in 2006 and 2007, the aggregate amount of funds in the taxpayers' fire pay, vote poker stars, and party poker accounts uh, went beyond the $10,000 um, uh, ceiling that uh, triggers the filing of an FBAR. Remember, that $10,000 threshold is what uh, triggers the requirement for an FBAR, and that is in U.S. currency. Um, after conducting an FBAR exam of um, John's 2006 and 2007 um, taxes, the IRS assessed penalties against him for failing to file FBARs for his interest in all three accounts, um, not just Party Poker, but FirePay, Poker Stars, and Party Poker for 2006. And then they assessed a penalty for failing to file an FBAR for the Poker Stars account for 2007. John failed to pay the penalties. And um, as the IRS uh, knows uh, how to do all too well, they filed suit against the taxpayer in federal court. What was their argument? Well, the IRS argued that FirePay, PokerStars, and Party Poker were all financial institutions because they functioned as commercial banks. And you're going to hear this language um, come up a lot in the context of these um, uh, these poker online poker accounts. And um, the language that I'm getting at is the duck test. And the duck test is, um, it's nothing technical. It's nothing that we uh, learned in law school. It just means that if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, if it flies like a duck, then it's a duck. So that is the test that the IRS applied here. They argue to the court that fire pay, poker stars, and party poker, uh, while they may not uh, per se be banks, they all act like they're banks. They act like they're financial institutions um, because they hold money uh, of the taxpayer. They, um, you know, they act um, as if they are a brick and mortar bank. And so for that reason, they meet the definition of a foreign financial institution. Now, the district court, which is the 
um, which is basically the lower court, not the Ninth Circuit, uh, but the court below the Ninth Circuit, they agreed with the IRS. And their reasoning was that John opened the accounts with all three entities. He controlled access to the accounts. He was able to deposit money into the accounts. He was able to withdraw money from the accounts. He was able to transfer money from the accounts to other entities at will and could carry a balance on the on the accounts. Again, it looks like a duck. It quacks like a duck. It walks like a duck. So um, it's a duck. The court also found that because all three entities were licensed and regulated in foreign countries, they met the definition of foreign uh, for purposes of foreign financial institutions. And so what does the court do? The court goes in favor of the IRS and they affirm or they actually um, uh, hold in favor of the IRS and they say that John's online accounts were reportable. And what does that mean for John? That means that the assessments that were made against him in terms of those uh, civil penalties uh, stick and that he had to pay them. John didn't like that. John didn't like the idea of having to pay obscene uh, civil FBAR penalties. And so he appealed the district court's decision to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And what we hear, what we have here is a very interesting opinion, uh, which is available online and which you can uh, Google and uh, it'll come right up. The Ninth Circuit uh, essentially split the baby. They affirmed the district court's decision with respect to the FirePay account because FirePay qualified as a foreign financial institution. However, the Ninth Circuit reversed the district court's decision when it came to the poker stars and party poker accounts. The reasoning that they used was that those two accounts, uh, namely poker stars and party poker, did not fall within the definition of banks, securities, or other financial accounts, which would have been necessary in order for those accounts to be considered foreign financial um, accounts for purposes of FBAR reporting. The court, um, and this is, gets into a little bit more of the weeds, um, but uh, nonetheless, I think it's still um, relevant in this in this case. Uh, the court reasoned uh, that John's FirePay account fell within the definition of a financial of a financial institution for purposes of FBAR filing because FirePay was a money transmitter, and the authority for that is found in Section 5312. The court, on the other hand, um, or the court, I should say, viewed FirePay as an intermediary. Um, between John's Wells Fargo account and the online poker sites. Uh, they reasoned that John could carry a balance in the FirePay account. He could transfer funds to either his Wells Fargo account or his online poker accounts. FirePay even charged fees to transfer funds. So FirePay, in the language used by the court, acted as a licensed sender of money or any other person who engages as a business in the transmission of funds and therefore qualified as a financial institution. And the court held the FirePay was a foreign financial institution because it was located and regulated by the United Kingdom. Now, in stark contrast, and this is what you want to wrap your head around because this is uh, how the court um, reversed the reasoning that the court used to reverse the lower court's decision that the other accounts were foreign accounts. The, um, the court, the Ninth Circuit, held that the poker stars and party poker accounts were not reportable, were not reportable, sorry, because they didn't fall within the definition of a bank, securities, or other financial account. 
And what you need to understand here is a little bit of background information. The IRS, as we discussed before, argued that these two entities were functioning like banks. Um, because neither the statute nor the regulations defined banking, what did the court do? Well, they used the they used uh, the banking uh, definition that was found in the Webster Dictionary, which is the ordinary and common meaning of a bank. And that essentially defines a bank as an establishment for the custody, um, loan, exchange, or issuance of money, for the extension of credit, for facilitating the transmission of funds, et cetera, et cetera. Since there was no evidence to suggest that party poker and poker stars were established for any of those purposes, the court held that they weren't banks and that John's accounts with them were not reportable bank accounts. And now we move on to this gray area of gold or cash notes stored inside a vault inside a foreign financial institution. This is the um, this is the proverbial riddle wrapped within a mystery, wrapped within a um, whatever the third uh, the third thing is. Uh, this is a very tricky area uh, because a lot of times gold or cash notes are maintained by private companies. And yet these private companies, and these are all offshore private companies, rent or lease space in commercial banks that are overseas. And so the issue becomes one of, does the gold that is being managed by the private firm and stored in a uh, bank in a foreign financial institution that's been leased by the private company, does that trigger an FBAR reporting requirement? And uh, I'm sad to say that we don't have a, um, a black and white ruling yet from the IRS or revenue ruling or anything to that measure to give us guidance on this and to um, establish this once and for all. Um, I will tell you that when I am confronted with an issue like this and a client comes to me uh, with um, this issue um, out of an abundance of caution um, and taking into consideration the fact that um, this issue could go um, either way at some, um, you know, at some uh, point in time, we usually um, report it and um, don't take any chances. Um, so notwithstanding the fact that a strong argument can be made against it being um, a foreign financial account, um, it's oftentimes better to just take the high road and um, put it on an FBAR and disclose it. When is a financial account a foreign financial account? Um, Sorry, Mike, we just want to jump in before. Sure. Just my question and get our second poll launch. So this is poll number two. That one's up and going. Went very quickly with poll number one. So I assume this one will be just as fast. <clears throat> Answers rolling in here. I appreciate addressing that gold question, Mike. That seemed to be uh, several people had similar questions in the questions panel before you got to that slide. So 
hopefully that provided the answer. Oh, Matt, the other thing I wanted to mention real fast, I attached a sample questionnaire that um, should be on the page. Uh, it's in an Excel format. Uh, for uh, it's a, it's a questionnaire that uh, they can use as a blueprint uh, for uh, for this um, for the same question. Excellent, and that's located right there in that handouts tab. So, taking a look at the responses, looks like sixty one percent of our audience does provide a questionnaire. So perhaps that handout can help supplement. Twenty percent say no, so that can certainly fill in. Twenty percent not applicable. So we'll go ahead and close down poll number two. And it looks like your PowerPoint's doing that funny thing again. I don't know why. <laughs> oh, boy. I apologize, everyone. Uh, let me go from the current slide. There we go. All right. Um, Thanks. I'm just going to take a quick uh, diversion into why it's important to have a questionnaire. Uh, there are obvious reasons. Um, the first is that uh, the client... Um, you know, may not disclose to you that they have a foreign bank account for uh, reasons stemming from any one of a number of uh, things from fear that uh, they haven't reported the foreign account in prior years. And so you don't ever want to be stuck in a situation where the taxpayer is pointing their finger at you um, after the IRS has discovered that they have a foreign bank account. Um, and having the taxpayer blame you as not uh, having filed the FBAR or the FinCEN 114 um, after they told you. So this is a way of um, essentially keeping the taxpayer honest and protecting yourself uh, because by handing out the questionnaire and keeping it in your records, uh, you have a an answer from them. Um, and if they come back to point the finger at you or to try in some way to uh, force you into paying the heavy handed penalties that are coming their way, uh, you have uh, the defense of pulling out that questionnaire and saying, well, you, uh, you indicated to me that uh, you didn't have any foreign financial accounts. So um, I did not, um, you know, take it upon myself to file a 114. So it's a method, uh, it's a way of protecting yourself. And um, in this business, um, you can never be too uh, too safe. So that's one of the reasons why I encourage it. And uh, to the extent that the client does have foreign financial accounts, it helps you to uh, organize um, what you need and the type of information that is necessary and that has to be gathered in order to complete the uh, form um, in its entirety. So if you want to, uh, feel free to use that questionnaire as a blueprint. Uh, you can adapt it to uh, your own personal needs or uh, you can take it and use it, uh, you know, as in, in its current state. Returning now to uh, the elements of the rule, one is a financial account, a foreign financial account. Very simply, one is located outside of the U.S. Uh, the U.S. includes all 50 states and D.C., all U.S. territories and possessions. Okay, uh, so this is the end of our first module. Uh, we're going to jump right into the rest of these. Um, what does it mean for the taxpayer to have a financial interest in a financial account? Uh, well, just like anything else here, uh, these are terms of art. 
Um, and the way it's uh, defined here is that a U.S. person has a financial interest in the following situations. And uh, we basically go through them here one by one. Uh, the first is the most obvious. Uh, the U.S. person is the owner of record or holder of legal title, uh, regardless of whether the account is maintained for the benefit of the U.S. person or for the benefit of another person, even a non-U.S. person. Second, the owner of record or holder of legal title is a person acting as an agent, a nominee, an attorney, or a person acting on behalf of the U.S. person uh, when it comes to the account. So here is, uh, here's an example. Uh, John is a U.S. citizen. His brother, Paul, maintains bank accounts in Mexico on John's behalf. The accounts are held in Paul's name, but Paul only accesses the accounts pursuant to John's instructions. So the issue here is one of whether John has a financial interest in the Mexican bank accounts for FBAR reporting purposes. And the answer here is yes. So again, even though John is not the person who maintains the accounts and it's his brother who's doing it on his behalf, um, and it's his brother um, who, uh, who basically has the accounts in his name, um, notwithstanding all of that, John uh, is still considered to have a financial interest in the account. Now, it's important to note here that if Paul is a U.S. citizen or resident, he also has an FBAR reporting requirement when it comes to these accounts. But for purposes of this example, we are assuming that he doesn't. So um, don't be uh, confused or um, misled into believing that a taxpayer who is not maintaining the foreign bank account, um, that they don't have a FBAR filing requirement. So long as the um, you know, so, so long as it's their account, uh, it doesn't matter that there is another individual who is um, basically um, maintaining it on their behalf. They still must report the account. Um, in this next example, um, a person has a financial interest in an account um, if they are the owner of record or holder of legal title and it's a corporation in which a U.S. person owns directly or indirectly. So let me set this up for you. The U.S. person owns the account through an intermediary. And in this case, uh, it's a corporation. Uh, so the corporation basically owns the accounts. Um, however, the U.S. person is a shareholder of the corporation. And so the U.S. person... Uh, when I talk about person in this context, I'm talking about a real live human being. They indirectly own the accounts uh, through the corporation to the extent that the real live U.S. person or shareholder owns more than 50% of the total value of stock in the corporation or more than 50% of the voting power of all shares of stock, they have an obligation to file an FBAR. Again, notwithstanding the fact that the accounts are um, in the corporation's name and not in their name. So here we have some examples. In our first example, we have a Minnesota corporation that owns 100% of a Spanish company. The Spanish company maintains several foreign bank accounts. Must the Minnesota corporation file an FBAR? Yes. 
Well, and the reason is because the Minnesota Corporation is a U.S. person. Remember, for purposes of FBAR reporting, U.S. person means more than just a live human being. It also includes a corporation. And because the Minnesota Corporation is um, a U.S. person, it is incorporated in the state of Minnesota and therefore is a U.S. Uh, person. And because it directly owns more than 50% of the total value of the shares of the Spanish company, um, we now have a situation where the Minnesota Corporation has to file an FBAR. Now, in example two, we're going to assume that Jack um, is a U.S. person and that he owns 75% of the Minnesota Corporation that we talked about in the previous example. Remember that the Minnesota Corporation owns uh, or maintains several foreign bank accounts in Spain. And now all we've added is a situation where Jack is a shareholder of the Minnesota Corporation and he owns 75% of the corporation. The issue now becomes one of whether Jack must file an FBAR. And the answer to that question is yes. Uh, the reason? Because he indirectly, that being Jack, owns more than 50% of the total value of shares of stock of the Spanish company. And the Spanish company is the owner of record of the uh, foreign financial accounts. Um, actually, I think I said that wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, Jack owns an interest in the Minnesota Corporation, I'm sorry, which in turn owns um, has ownership over the Spanish bank accounts. Because Jack indirectly owns more than 50% of the total value of shares of stock um, in the Minnesota Corporation, and the Minnesota Corporation owns um, the Spanish bank accounts, he would uh, indirectly be the owner of the Spanish bank accounts and therefore must file an FBAR. Uh, in another case where a person has a uh, financial interest in a foreign bank account is when they are uh, or what, when the owner of record or holder of legal title is a partnership in which the U.S. person owns directly or indirectly an interest in greater than 50% of the partnership's profits or an interest in greater than 50% of the partnership capital. So as you can see, 50% um, uh, is a um, number that you want to keep in mind um, because that is going to become relevant when it comes to corporations and partnerships. In another case, trusts. Remember, we talked about how a trust could also be considered U a U.S. person for purposes of FBAR reporting. Uh, the uh, person, the owner of record or holder of legal title, is a trust. Now, um, in that case, the trust would be considered to have a or uh, to own a foreign financial interest in the account. And um, this is when the person is the trust grantor and has an ownership interest in the trust for U.S. federal tax purposes. In this example, we have Diana. Uh, she's a U.S. citizen. She's a grantor of a foreign asset protection trust, but she doesn't control the trust's assets, nor does she receive distributions from the trust. Must Diana report the trust's foreign financial accounts on an FBAR? Yes. Our reason is because as the grantor, Diana is deemed to be the owner of the trust assets for federal tax purposes. Note here a very subtle 
distinction that was um, specifically designed to throw you off and show you how this rule operates. It doesn't matter that Diane does not control the trust assets. It doesn't matter that she doesn't receive distributions from the trust. The fact that she is deemed to be the owner of the trust assets is enough um, to make her be uh, to make her have a reporting requirement for the trust. And what makes her the owner of the trust assets? Well, she is the grantor. Um, and that is what triggers her FBAR reporting obligation. It doesn't matter, uh, once again, that she doesn't control the trust assets. It doesn't matter that she doesn't receive distributions. The fact that she is a grantor of the trust is enough to trigger her obligation to report uh, the trust on the FBAR. In another case, uh, the owner of record or holder of legal title is a trust in which a U.S. person has, owns a greater than 50% beneficial interest in the assets or income of the trust for the calendar year. In this case, we have Amy. She's a U.S. citizen. She has a remainder interest in a trust that has a foreign financial account. Must Amy report the trust's foreign financial account on an FBAR? No. And the reason why here is, and this is very, very subtle, it's not going to come up uh, frequently, but if and when it does, you'll be ready for it. A remainder interest is not considered a present beneficial interest for FBAR purposes. And that's what um, allows Amy to escape an FBAR reporting requirement um, for the trust. Another case in which a U.S. person um, has a foreign financial interest in a foreign bank account. Uh, it's when the owner of record or holder of legal title is any other entity where the U.S. person owns directly or indirectly more than 50% of the voting power, a total value of equity, interests, or assets, or interest in profits. Okay. Uh, reporting jointly held accounts. Uh, now we're getting back into some mainstream things um, and some very practical uh, tips. If two people jointly maintain a foreign bank account, or if several people each own a partial interest in the account, then each person has a financial interest in the account. Uh, therefore, each person must report the entire value of the account on an FBAR. Um, as you can imagine, um, clients come to you with all sorts of um, misconceptions about how FBAR reporting um, works. And um, one of the most common misconceptions that um, couples have is that um, if they both own a joint interest in a foreign bank account, that um, the husband only has to report 50% of the maximum uh, balance in the account and that the wife only has to report 50% of the maximum balance in the account. That is not true. It's the entire value of the account that both the husband and the wife must uh, report on separate FBARs. Now, there is limited uh, joint filing for spouses, um, and here's how it arises. Must the spouse of an individual who files an FBAR file a separate FBAR? Uh, no, but only if the following conditions are satisfied. So there is a dispensation from uh, spouses or couples having to file two separate FBARs, um, and the following conditions have to be satisfied, however, before 
um, the uh, non-filing spouse is exempt, or before one of the spouses rather is exempt from having to file an FBAR. The first condition is that all the financial accounts that the non-filing spouse is required to report are jointly owned with the filing spouse. The second condition is that the filing spouse actually reports the jointly owned accounts on a timely filed FBAR. Third, the filers have completed and signed Form 114A, which is the record of authorization to electronically file the FBARs. It's important to note here that even if one of these conditions isn't satisfied, then most, then both spouses rather must file separate FBARs and each spouse must report the entire value of the jointly owned accounts. Now, I don't want to confuse you. I don't want to mislead you. But um, just going back to the earlier slide about reporting jointly held accounts, um, you might initially be a little confused over the rule that was laid out in this slide, where if two persons jointly maintain a foreign bank account, then each U.S. person has a financial interest in the account, and each person must report the entire value of the account. This rule assumes that you have two uh, business people um, that are involved. Um, it doesn't necessarily assume that it's a couple. Okay, and I apologize because the example that I gave you here um, initially took into consideration a husband and a wife. I now, I, I this is basically the um, the main rule, and then we have the exception to the rule, which is called the limited joint filing for spouses. So to the extent that these three conditions laid out have been satisfied, then only one of the spouses needs to file an FBAR. Um, and so uh, to the extent, again, that these three conditions are satisfied, the non-filing spouse need not file an FBAR. Now, I will point something else out, again, not to confuse you, but just to be aware. You see that the first condition states all the financial accounts that the non-filing spouse is required to report are jointly owned with the filing spouse. So there has to be joint ownership. Second, the filing spouse actually reports the jointly owned accounts on a timely filed FBAR. That's the rub. So if you are in a situation or you find yourself in a situation where a husband and a wife have um, ownership, both own uh, the foreign bank account, and you are filing delinquent FBARs for earlier years, um, and by delinquent, I mean that they were never filed in a timely manner. The fact that you are now filing delinquent FBARs and making uh, perhaps what is um, considered a quiet disclosure uh, to the IRS means that both spouses will need separate FBARs. Why? Because condition two has been violated. Uh, the filing spouse did not uh, timely file an FBAR. And as a result, uh, now two FBARs have to be filed for the delinquent ones. Um, and that's very important to recognize. So the exception is very strict. Uh, only one spouse need file an FBAR so long as it's timely filed. When it comes to delinquent FBARs from earlier years um, that 
are being filed, then there needs to be two separate FBARs, one for the husband, one for the wife, and the entire value of the jointly owned accounts must be must appear on both FBARs. What does it mean to have signature authority over an account? Well, Perfect. Sign- just, just uh, <laughs> jump in here before that one. Sure. Perfect timing on that slide for our, our next poll. So um, just going to launch number three. This one asks exactly what we just went over. Must a spouse of individual files that bar file a separate FBAR? Should be straightforward. <laughs> what we just learned here. And results rolling in very quickly. Of course, majority saying no, as long as uh, conditions are met. Give this one last few seconds of poll number three. Go ahead and close this one down. And uh, right, get that back. Thanks so much. Great. Um, signature authority. Well, signature authority is the authority of a person to control the uh, movement of assets held in the foreign bank account uh, by direct communication. And by direct communication, that could be in writing. Um, or you know, via email to the bank or other uh, financial institution that maintains the account. So to the extent that the person can control the movement of assets in the foreign bank uh, through communication with a bank representative, um, that, is, that would constitute signature authority for purposes of uh, signature authority under the rule. And they would then have an obligation to report the account on the FBAR. <clears throat> now, a person has a financial interest in a foreign account, not only if he is the owner of record or holder of legal title, but also if he has signature authority of the account or maintains it jointly with another person. Uh, there are additional ways in which a person can have a financial interest in a foreign account, uh, but this section only covers joint ownership. So to the extent that two people jointly own a foreign bank account, each must file an FBAR reporting the entire value of the account because each has a financial interest in the account. The exception, as we just laid out before, is when it comes to spouses, uh, the spouse of an individual who files an FBAR, a timely FBAR, um, and those conditions are satisfied. All right. Now we have Megan. She's a U.S. resident. She has a power of attorney on her elderly parents' accounts in Canada, but she's never exercised that power. Must Megan file an FBAR reporting her parents' Canadian accounts? The answer is yes, but only if the power of attorney gives Megan signature authority over the accounts. And uh, the question of whether or not she ever exercises that authority is meaningless for purposes of the FBAR filing requirement. Uh, The uh, pivotal issue here is uh, whether she has signature authority, and it doesn't matter if she exercised that authority or not. What is the maximum account value? Okay, uh, this is another uh, area that is oftentimes um, misunderstood. Maximum account value 
has a precise definition. It's defined as a reasonable approximation of the greatest value of currency or non-monetary assets in the account during the calendar year. So you want to focus on greatest um, because that's what is requested on Form 114. Uh, for purposes of each account. So to give you a visual of what this form looks like, and I apologize, I should have included it in the handout, but all, uh, all of the taxpayers' foreign bank accounts are going to appear on a single FBAR for the year in question. And what you will see, if you can visualize this in your mind, is uh, a number of fields, the first of which will ask, the name of the bank, and then usually under the name of the bank, you have to uh, list the address of the bank, um, the jurisdiction that it's located in, and um, the uh, one of the last few fields in the box for foreign bank account will request the maximum value or the greatest value of currency in that bank account. And what's necessary... <clears throat> in order to uh, populate that field correctly is um, taking a look at the bank statements and identifying what the highest value in the account was during that tax year. Now, as we know, we're dealing in most cases with foreign currency. And so the next question becomes one of, can I simply um, populate that field that asks me for the greatest value of the account in the foreign currency? The answer to that question is no. What has to happen in order to um, file, in order to populate that field correctly, is you must take the foreign currency and convert it into U.S. currency using the exchange rate that's in effect as of the last day of the tax year. So if, for example, you're filing a 2016 FBAR, what you would be doing is you would uh, naturally request from the client copies of their uh, foreign bank account statements for each quarter. Now, I know this raises a host of questions because a lot of foreign financial institutions don't publish uh, quarterly uh, reports. And so it becomes necessary to request information, um, you know, and I know how difficult that can be. It, uh, it's, it's like parting the seas in some cases. I've even had to go as far as hiring legal counsel in the foreign jurisdiction in order to obtain bank statements that uh, rightfully belong to the taxpayer, but uh, were not um, being um, disclosed to the taxpayer for reasons um, I still cannot understand. But assuming you have everything that you need in front of you, it's basically a compare and stare. Find the highest, um, uh, find the point in time during the tax year when the account was at its highest in uh, foreign currency. And then what you would do is you would simply convert that amount to U.S. currency using the exchange rate that is in effect as of December 31st of that year. And that is the value that would be populated in the cell on the FBAR 
that asks for the um, uh, the greatest value of currency um, in the account. And that pro and it, it's a rinse and repeat process because, as I said, um, if there are multiple foreign bank accounts, uh, all of them will appear on one F bar for the year in question, and you would simply uh, go go uh, go down the list and do the same thing for each foreign bank account. All right. How is a maximum account value determined? It can be reduced to two steps. First, determine the maximum account value of the account during the year. Second, convert the maximum account value for each account into U.S. currency using the exchange rate in effect on the last day of the calendar year, which um, is December 31st. So here we have some examples. Todd is our taxpayer. It's tax year 2014. He had a foreign account with a Japanese bank. First, Todd would determine the maximum value of the account in yen. Second, he'd convert the maximum value of the account into U.S. dollars using the exchange rate in effect on December 31st, 2014. What type of documentation might Todd rely upon to determine the maximum balance of the account? Well, um, the most obvious are periodic account statements, so long as they fairly reflect the maximum account balance of the account in 2014. Uh, for those of you who wonder whether those account statements have to be attached to the FBAR, the answer is no. However, they must be in your records because if there is um, any question as to whether that uh, value is uh, legitimate or not, you need to be able to supply the IRS with the um, uh, with the uh, information to back up those numbers. What's the maximum aggregate value rule? This is where things get gray. So here we have an example. Uh, we have a taxpayer with three accounts, and this is our most basic example. We're going to assume that the taxpayer owns three bank accounts. And by the way, it doesn't matter if account A, B, and C are all with the same account or, or same bank rather, or if they are in separate bank accounts. Um, the fact that they are separate accounts means that they would have to be listed separately on an F bar. We're going to assume for purposes of this example that the highest balance for 2010 um, in the accounts is $25,000, $35,000, $40,000 respectively. We're also going to assume that we've made the conversion into U.S. currency. What is the maximum aggregate balance? We're simply going to take these highest balances and we're going to add them up and we come up with $100,000. Now you'll notice that each account by itself exceeds the threshold of $10,000. And um, you'll notice that the aggregate um, balance, maximum balance, well exceeds $10,000 by $90,000. So we know that we have an FBAR filing obligation. Now, let's change this hypo up a little bit. Let's assume that John has three foreign accounts the highest balances of which never exceed 10000 in U.S. currency. In fact, the highest balance in each account is $9,000. And so here we have, once again, three separate accounts. It doesn't matter if they are in with one financial institution or if they are with three 
separate financial institutions. But we know that they are under $10,000. Now, the question becomes one of whether any of these accounts have to be reported on an FBAR. Remember what the FBAR definition told us. It's only when the account exceeds $10,000, when the highest balance in the account exceeds $10,000 during the tax year that there is a FBAR filing obligation. Well, if you look at this and you interpret the rule um, you know, literally, you might think that there's no FBAR filing obligation because none of these accounts has eclipsed the threshold of $10,000. Unfortunately, um, that would be wrong. And that's because of the maximum aggregate balance rule. Although none of the accounts by themselves trigger an FBAR reporting requirement because not any one of them exceeds a 10,000 reporting threshold, together they do. And again, it's $9,000 uh, maximum balance for each account. Multiply that by three. What does that give us? That gives us $27,000. And so the aggregate maximum balance of all three accounts exceeds the $10,000 threshold by $17,000. And so the highest aggregate balance of the three accounts is $27,000. Therefore, all three accounts must be reported on the FBAR, even though none of them alone triggers the FBAR reporting requirement. And I will tell you this, as I'm sure everybody can grasp this, this issue alone, you will have to repeat countless times to the client and, um, and, and really be patient because it's hard for them to wrap their head around it um, because they read the rule literally and think that because none of the accounts exceeds the 10,000 threshold, that none of them must be reported. In uh, practice, what you'll normally see, this is the very basic, basic example, but in practice, what you'll see is you'll see um, accounts with six figures, and then you'll see one minor account that might be uh, two or three thousand dollars as its highest highest balance. And so, a lot of times, the taxpayer will say, "Well, the two thousand dollar account, you know, is not even near the ten thousand dollars. So, what the heck are we doing reporting it?" And that's because even though it's as little as $2,000 and there may be other accounts that are in the high six figures, all accounts must be reported on the FBAR. And trust me when I tell you an incomplete FBAR can be penalized to the extent that a non-filed FBAR um, can be penalized um, too. So be very, very careful because the issue that's been coming up a lot lately are taxpayers who have conveniently um, neglected to tell their tax preparers about certain accounts. And I'm not saying that it's intentional. In some cases, it is completely, um, completely, um, you know, forgetful and just completely, um, you know, um, completely, uh, you know, uh, just something that they, uh, an oversight. But when the account that the taxpayer forgets to tell you about or conveniently leaves off is in the high six figures, 
it becomes a lot more suspect to the IRS that they were hiding the account and that it wasn't a mere oversight or inadvertence that resulted in that account not being disclosed on the FBAR. Okay. Most commonly asked questions about the FBAR. How does an FBAR violation occur? Well, it can occur in one of two ways. Uh, the first is probably the most obvious way, and that's when the um, taxpayer fails to disclose the foreign account on an FBAR altogether. So in other words, an FBAR never gets filed and the account uh, never gets disclosed. Second, uh, by disclosing a foreign account on an FBAR, but under-reporting the correct amount. So for example, we can have a situation where the taxpayer um, discloses, readily discloses the foreign account, but under-reports the highest balance in that account. And um, for example, the highest balance may be $100,000 uh, when, uh, when, the, when the foreign currency is converted into U.S. currency as of the last day of the tax year but um, it's only reported as $50,000. That can constitute a violation. I would also add that there's a third way, and that is what we just discussed, where a foreign bank account is not listed on the FBAR, no matter how small the highest balance is for whatever reason. Um, and I'm you know, being very careful here not to impute a sinister motive, but for whatever reason, even if one account is not listed on the FBAR, that can lead to an FBAR violation. And why is that significant? Well, it's significant in the sense that the IRS can assess a penalty against the taxpayer for an incomplete FBAR in the same way that the IRS can assess a penalty against the taxpayer for not filing an FBAR at all. And that's why it's very important to take inventory of all of the client's foreign bank accounts. And that's why I cannot, um, I can, I cannot be, I cannot stress to you enough how important it is to have an intake sheet where you put the onus on the client to list all of the foreign accounts that they have. That way, um, when the IRS uh, confronts you and or confronts a taxpayer with an undisclosed account on the FBAR, you then have a defense uh, by being able to rely on the intake sheet that the taxpayer gave you to argue, hey, I worked with what they gave me and this is these are all the accounts that they told me about. I didn't know anything about XYZ account in the Cayman Islands that was $800,000. I was only told about ABC account, DEF account, GHI account that uh, were $50,000 as high maximum balances. So you always want to protect yourself and that's why an inventory sheet is critical when it comes to this area. So yeah, many taxpayers think that as long as the account has been disclosed, there can be no violation, even though the account was underreported. Uh, that's a myth. So let's assume here that we have Jason. He reports 50,000 as a maximum value of his Cayman Islands account, but the maximum value is actually $150,000. 
there's an FBAR violation here. I mean, and I'll, a, a, as somebody who is looking at this, I would, um, I would be very skeptical and cynical to think that this was just a scrivener's error or a, um, you know, a, uh, an oversight because there is a huge differential here between the $50,000 balance that's reported and the actual maximum value of $150,000. So we want to be very careful here that we get the right value because the IRS can assess a penalty just based on this, um, this screw up alone. All right, before we get to the date of an FBAR violation, I just want to make a uh, um, a point that um, I should have made a little bit earlier, and that is that on the 1040, um, Schedule B, Part 3, there is a section that asks the taxpayer, point blank, do you have an ownership interest in a foreign bank account? Um, now, um, you know, that's a yes or no question. It's not, you know, it's it's one of those things where um, you know, it's not a gray area. It's not even asking if the account has a balance over $10,000. It's asking very, uh, very candidly, do you own an interest in a foreign bank account? Um, that, that, uh, that question has to be answered in the affirmative, even if the taxpayer's foreign account is under the $10,000 threshold. And we want to be very careful with Schedule B Part 3 because the IRS tends to rely on the answer that is given in that section to establish willfulness. Now, I'm not, I'm not uh, saying that a no answer to that question um, against the backdrop of a taxpayer who actually does have a foreign account essentially equates to willfulness. I'm just saying that it's one of the stronger factors that the IRS can rely upon to argue willfulness. And why is that significant? Well, willfulness is an element that the IRS has to make out when it comes to assessing a willful FBAR penalty. And willfulness is the be-all and end-all when it comes to using the streamlined procedures to get a client into compliance with uh, their um, their foreign bank account reporting. So we want to be very careful that that question is answered appropriately. I'll also make this caveat, and then we'll continue. Um, if the client is using TurboTax or is using uh, one of those online tax um, preparing tools, um, that question would come up as one of the preliminary questions. And to the extent that the taxpayer answers no, then that Schedule B Part 3 will never even populate in the, um, you know, when the taxpayer is preparing the return. So it's very important if a taxpayer consults with you that you put them on notice that even uh, in the preliminary questionnaire, they have to answer that question, do you have an interest in a foreign bank account in the affirmative, even if the threshold is below 10 all right, Mike, and uh, I put up our final poll. That one's up and going, seeing the responses come in. We're right here at the hour, so I know a lot of uh, folks have another session to jump off to, so you're certainly welcome to leave here and on to that one. Uh, let me just remind uh, everyone who's about to do that. We'll get to work on issuing credit. And again, you'll see an email from us here at CPA Academy letting you know it is all set. 
we'll have this recording posted later in the day today to our archive library as well. So if you miss anything, you need to review it, more than welcome to do so. There were a ton of great questions. We'll make sure that those get passed along to Mike once we wrap up with today's session here today. And Mike, I just want to say thank you. Fantastic job. Obviously, a ton, ton to cover like we knew. I think we squeezed in as much as possible as we could in the hour and a half. So very appreciative of doing so and appreciative of your expertise. And uh, looking forward to your other topics coming with uh, up with us and very much uh, looking forward to having you back. Super. Thank you very much. And if anyone has any questions, feel free to reach out. For me, um, in any way, um, you know, you like, uh, you can email me, you can call me. Uh, my door is always open. Excellent. Thanks so much, Mike. And uh, like I said, we'll see you soon.